We'll take your copy of God's Word and find yourself in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Title for our time in the Word together this morning is Having Eyes That See. We come to a unique time in the life of our Lord, a unique miracle that has no parallel in the other Gospels. In fact, this miracle that we're about to read about doesn't show up in the other synoptics, Matthew or Luke, and John doesn't recount it either. It's also unique in the fact that it is the only miracle that doesn't occur instantly. Let's pick it up in John, excuse me, in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Mark 8, 22. And they came to Bethsaida. And they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? The man looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes. And he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. Jesus sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. One of the features of God's word, one of the features of scripture that I think validates its authenticity and its divine nature as much as any other attribute is the fact that it does not whitewash its heroes. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, we learned that they sinned against God and were judged and we still ski in that wake. Abraham lies about Sarah being his wife. Are you ready for this? Twice. And if that wasn't enough, his son Isaac did the same thing about his wife. Moses, through his faith, saw God's supply in an arid desert, water for multiple million peoples from a rock. God said, speak to the rock and water will flow. And Moses took a rod and hit the rock. And how can we forget David, the greatest king of Israel, the man with a heart for God like none else, and he was an adulterous murderer. I want to have you think and consider that the narrators of these accounts knew of the shortcomings and knew of the sins of these Bible characters. These are heroes in some dimension to us, Moses and David. And yet the writers of Scripture tell us their sins, their failures. They don't soften them. 
They tell us of their weaknesses. They also tell us of their desire to follow God, but they don't always paint the rosiest picture of these men and women. So it should not surprise us when we come to the New Testament that when we find the first followers of Jesus, the 12 disciples who would be apostles, they are shown in the same light. Few, think about this, few if any people ever to live hold such an esteemed position as the men who walked and interacted, slept in the open country with and, and dined and had breakfast with and spent day to night with the Savior more than these 12 men. What an esteemed position. Yet as Mark paints the picture of the Son of Man and the Son of God in Mark, his gospel, he has no intention of painting these disciples as spiritual superheroes. In fact, he repeatedly uses their sins, he uses their failures, he uses their misunderstandings and their immaturities for theological purposes to instruct us to be examples for us not to follow and to look in with a, with a learning eye. David Garland says in his Theology of Mark, quote, the fallibility of the disciples not only reveals that one does not become a mature disciple in one year, it also reveals that even those closest to Jesus and chosen by him were a part of the universal human disobedience that necessitated the cross and Jesus' representative expiatory death, end quote. What he's saying is these are not discouragements when we see the failures of the disciples. These ought to be encouragements to us, to learn from us. And the Holy Spirit, through Mark's pen, under the influence, no doubt, of the facts told him by Peter, is telling us, look at what faith looks like from zero to 100. Look at what faith looks like in its, in its infant stage, in its toddler stage, in its teen years, and in its full maturity. Now, we gotta back up a little bit because we can't drop into this passage uh, without knowing what's going on. Jesus has just talked to his disciples. Now, let, let's get some structure here. Remember, this is one of the Markan sandwiches we keep talking about where Mark uses two distinct bookends with something in the middle and, and the something in the middle informs the bookends and the bookends inform the middle. This is a unique sandwich because the bread of the sandwich is in the middle. What I mean by that is the central part of this sandwich is all about loaves that we looked at last, last week. Jesus feeds 4,000 with loaves. The disciples forget loaves in the boat. And then he says, don't you remember the lesson of me feeding everyone with those loaves? It's all about bread. In the center of that is this question, verse 17. Remember, the disciples are in the boat. They've forgotten their, their lunch. One, only one person has their little pita bread. He says, why do you discuss the fact that you have no lunch, no bread? Do you not yet see or understanding or understand? That is such a critical question. It could be asked of you. It could be asked of me. Do you not yet see or understand what he'll say later in the passage is what I'm intending to teach you by my sustenance, by my omnipotence, by my power, by my, my healing miracles and my supplying miracles. Do you have a hardened heart? Is this intentional? Are you aware? And then he goes in verse 18, having eyes, 
do you not see and ears do you not hear? This is an echo of Jeremiah 5, an echo of Ezekiel 12. But what's most important is Jesus had said this same thing to the people uh, in, the, uh, in, in Mark chapter 4 who he was discussing had no ears to hear and no eyes to see in the parable of the sower. And at that point, he huddles the disciples together and talks about the crowd and says, they don't have eyes to really see what you see. They don't have ears to really hear what you hear. And they must have taken some level of pride in that. We're insiders. Jesus has just fed tens of thousands of people between the feeding of the 5,000 in the same area near Bethsaida and in the Gentile area. And now the disciples are in the boat. They have one piece of bread and they say, we're in trouble, guys. We have nothing to eat. We have one piece of bread among at least 13 of us. What are we gonna do? Oh, that there were an example of someone who could make much of little. I mean, that thought that they had just left on the shore evaporated. I mean, think of the, the, the outlandish nature of their, their dilemma. Jesus feeds 4,000 plus people from seven loaves. And it's significant that there are seven baskets full at the end. They get in the boat, they have one piece, and they say, one piece of bread, they're hungry. They go, oh man, no store out here in the lake. What will we do to get more food? I mean, do, do you see what they don't see? That's exactly what Jesus indicts them of. Based on Mark 4, 10 to 12, they should have known and understood. Now, let's set this, this up in context. This is fascinating how Mark does this. In Mark 7, 31 to 37, Jesus heals a deaf mute. Now, what's interesting is there's nothing in that healing that talks about this man's faith. So he hears someone who cannot heal someone who cannot hear, cannot speak correctly, and he heals him with spit. Then there's this section that Mark gives us on feeding the 4,000, the lesson in the boat, then the debrief of you should know what that lesson was about. Do you not have ears to hear? Do you not have eyes to see? The insiders just became outliers. Wait a minute. You guys don't get it? Remember, you were on my team. You you saw what I've done. Then, so there's the healing of the deaf, lesson about not being able to see and hear, and then a healing of someone who is blind. Do you see the correlation there? Deaf and blind, you're deaf and blind, right in the middle. That's what theologians call a Markin sandwich. The lesson is in the middle, and the outsides provide the explanation. Mark is showing us very simply that Jesus is indeed the source and sustenance of all things physical and all things spiritual. We just sang it. We just heard it sung. He is omnipotent, all power to provide. And then he asks them, do you not remember? Do you not remember that powerful notion of taking theological truth and the data of the narrative of Jesus' life, keeping it always in our minds so that we don't forget? Do you not remember, he says. Verses 19 to 21, he says, look, I fed 5,000 men plus their families and 
fed 4,000. There were 12 baskets full left over, seven basketfuls left over. Do you not yet understand, verse 21? Do you not yet understand? Now in Mark's wisdom under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit, look what he does. Jesus heals a deaf man. The lesson about seeing and hearing and their refusal to see and hear. And now Jesus heals a blind man. What makes these two healings significant is most of the healings demonstrate the the person who's being healed operating faith. These just happen. Which tells us that Mark is giving us a clue that these are genuine events, but they are illustrative of what the primary purpose and point he's making, which is you need to see with real eyes. You need to hear with real ears. Now back to verse 22. This miracle, as I said, has no parallel account in the other gospels. Mark alone records it. Now, as we look at this miracle today, we're gonna have to take away something different. I know you're used to having a a plural noun proposition. There's a proposition with with an outline and points. Today, we're not gonna have an outline. We're gonna have, this, this passage has one point. One point only. And we're gonna hang our thoughts on it and revolve our, our walking through the narrative around it. Here is that point. Seeing with spiritual eyes is a progressive process with a decisive completion. This healing is gonna illustrate that because that's the point that Jesus is making in the center of this Mark and sandwich on having eyes to see and ears to hear. Seeing with spiritual eyes is a progressive process with a decisive completion. That's the one point of the sermon. Let's walk through this narrative and find it, okay? Keep that in mind as we look at this healing. Verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida. So you'll hear it, Bethsaida, Bethsaida, if you wanna take the diphthong, both are correct. This is the home city, by the way, of Philip and Andrew and Peter. That's where they grew up. We know that that was their home region. And then they moved over west to Capernaum to to begin their fishing industry at some point in their life. We don't know when. It is very possible, very possible that these three men, Philip and Andrew and Peter, knew this blind man or at least knew of him. And they brought a blind man to Jesus. And literally they begged him. These friends beg him. They plead with him. They part the crowd. They get Jesus' attention. Don't look anywhere but us. We will not be refused. They were begging him to touch him. The request for Jesus to touch the man was simply a request to restore his eyesight, to, to heal his blindness. This demonstrates a few things. First of all, the, these friends had confidence. These friends must have had faith. They, they had seen and heard what Jesus could do and what he'd done in the past. They had absolute confidence that if they got their friend to Jesus, similar to the, in, in chapter two when the, the men go up on top of the roof, dig a hole in this roof and drop their paralytic friend down right in front of Jesus. Similar faith here. Secondly, this man had good friends. It's good to care about your friends. 
And they knew the best thing they could do for their infirmed friend was just like the deaf mute, just like the paralytic, was to get their infirmed friend to Jesus. What will Jesus do? Touch him. That's interesting they said, just touch him. Don't pronounce a spell over him. Don't pronounce a charm over him. They recognized that resident in the Savior was healing power. So Jesus' response indicates his gracious care. Verse 23, taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. Why did he take the blind man by the hand? Because the blind man needed guidance. Like the deaf mute, Jesus gets him away from the crowd. He isolates him. Now, one of the things that's not in the text that I find interesting is how did Jesus make the crowd stay back? Did he have some help from the disciples? We don't know, but he had authority. He taught like none, none other one. He said, I'm taking this guy away. I, I just wonder, why did they stay back? That in and of itself exhibits another point of Jesus' authority that when he spoke, people paid attention. He got their attention. He gets him away from the crowd, probably protecting the man's dignity, protecting his, his, his uh, 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 embarrassment, his, his being focused upon. He gets him aside, shows him this tender care. Now imagine this guy. There are literally thousands of people pressing. In this, in this area, tens and twenties of thousands of people were, were crowding around Jesus all the time. Here's this man who's blind. He can't even find Jesus. His friends bring him to him. And out of all of those thousands of people, Jesus says, I'm taking you by the hand and I'm taking you out of the village. Can we just say that every time a believer comes to faith in Christ, Jesus gives him that exact same isolated, solitary attention. This walk to the outskirts of the populated village must have been a memory he never forgot. You gotta wonder if they talked. He's holding the arm or holding the hand of Jesus. Jesus is guiding him outside the village. He takes him to a secluded place. Then verse 23, after spitting on his eyes, usually not a flannel board story we use, spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him he asked him, do you see anything? We all know that we, uh, we have a, a friend who's blind, Mike, uh, who's here with us today. Mike and I were talking about this story before the service about the, this spitting incident. And Mike says, you know, what, what I notice being blind that a lot of other people don't is sometimes when you talk, you, you, you spit a little bit, you, you, saliva flies out. And he says, you know, I just... Imagine not knowing that's coming. <laughs> well, imagine this guy. This was not only, this wasn't a little bit. It must have been close distance with two nice shots to the eyes. This is uniquely parallel to the deaf mute at the end of chapter seven. Jesus uses his own saliva to spit on this man to heal him. What in the world? Why? 
Well, I don't think you have to, I don't think you have to get really complicated with this. And don't, don't look for lots and lots of cross-references on this because you're not going to find them. One in John 9, we'll get to in a moment. I think Jesus is simply showing him that he is about to make this man's eyes open and alive, get this, with his own person and from his own life. This healing comes from me personally. It communicates direct transfer of healing, direct transfer of health. It's intended to be a picture of wholeness that comes personally from Jesus. Unmistakable. Oh, he could have said, God will heal you and he could have been healed and walked off and he could have thought Jesus was maybe just just the mediator between God and man. No, he heals them with himself. Indicating he didn't send to God for a healing. He as God provided a healing. What happens after Jesus applies the spit to the man's eyes though is unexpected. And it caught the attention of Peter who would have told Mark. It caught the attention of those looking around. It it was so important to Mark that he made this narrative out of it with the sandwich of the deaf and the blind with the command to see and hear in the middle. But this is unique. This doesn't, this must have shocked the disciples. Jesus asks him to give him a report. What do you see? Do you see anything? Notice he didn't say, can you see? Of course he can see. Do you see anything? What do you see? The nature of the question indicates Jesus knew exactly how this miracle was operating and how it was proceeding. The disciples may have been surprised it didn't work in an instant. Jesus wasn't. He was doing this intentionally. Spits in this man's eyes. Says, do you see anything? The only recorded miracle that takes place in stages, two stages. Verse 24, the man looks up and said, well, I see men, but, or for, I see them like walking trees. They're moving around literally. I like how the ASV translates this. I see men, for behold, I see them as trees walking about. How could he belt out, I see men? What men did he see? Probably the 12. And this is interesting because it says they're walking around. Why wouldn't they be standing there staring? Well, if you just saw the Savior spit in a guy's eyes, wouldn't you be looking around? What's, what is happening here? This is, you, this is odd. This doesn't happen every day. They were moving around and the man caught the movement, caught these tall figures that were upright, moving around, but it It was just not as even distinguishable as head and arms. They looked like just stick figures, just trees. This, by the way, is one of the first proofs in this narrative that the man was not born blind. 
He knew what men looked like. He knew what trees looked like. He knew to compare them to the two. And as we'll see in the next verse, Jesus says his eyesight was restored, which means he had it at one time and it came back to him. He had become blind. We don't know if it was an injury or a disease. So here's the situation. Spit in the eyes. You see anything? Well, yeah, actually I do see something. I see men. I'm assuming they're men because they're moving around. They're walking, but they look like trees. That's as much as I can make out. Very blurry vision. I hate to do this, but I have to tell you that this is, an, this is a text that some of our friends who are um, in the more radical arms of the charismatic movement use. They use this. I read an article this week where they use this to say, see, healing doesn't always take place when you heal a person. It can take longer, just like Jesus did. In fact, this man said, Jesus couldn't heal this man in one shot and sometimes we can't heal our people in one shot either. Is that what's happening here? No. By the way, it's only a few seconds here, so this is not some go off and come back in a few months. Because we find out in verse 25, then again, he laid his hands on his eyes. Now we have hands applied on top of the spittle. And I love this. The man looked intently. This is a Greek construction that says, he focused and squinted his eyes. You know what that's like? You know what it's like when you walk out from the dark to a lighter and you're just trying to adjust your eyes? He looked intently. His eyes came into instant focus and his sight was restored. And don't miss verse 25. And he began to see everything, what? Clearly. He touches the man again. His sight goes to 20-20 or better. I would think that if the Savior gave him sight, it might be a little better than 20-20. Restored means that this man had once had the privilege of seeing and had lost his sight. You know, I was thinking about our friend Mike and other people who were deaf and suffering paralysis or have blinded. We may not receive a physical healing here, but this is such a great foretaste of that one day when we will have fully restored, glorified bodies as believers. As I told you, I want to be really tall and sing well in my new body. The phrase that stands out is that the man began to see everything, everything clearly. It's an unusual way to say that he could see. He could have said, he fixed his eyesight. No, no, look at what he says. He began to see everything clearly. The way that's constructed is important because it's intending to teach a bigger lesson than just this man who regained his sight. I think this phrase is the reason that Mark is making a bigger point than just the healing of the blind man. It's a greater picture of how faith works. We know very few details about this blind man, very few. We don't know what his faith was like. We don't know uh, what his life was like. We don't know much about his friends, which leads us to believe that Mark is using this to illustrate something that he just said physically that has a metaphorical application spiritually. Seeing with spiritual eyes is what the point is. 
And just like the blind man received his sight in progressive stages, so does our faith work in the same way. Now, there are faster processes for some people than others. Some people, it may be you who've heard the gospel the first time and you say, wow, sign me up. I wanna follow this amazing savior. I'm all in. But my suspicion is for most, it's what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 1 where he says, you know, there's, there's planting and there's watering there's, and God causes the growth. I, I remember as a, as a youth pastor uh, years ago, Adam and I have talked about this many times that when, when a student in say high school comes to faith in Christ, it's important for the, the, the youth leaders to remember not to, I mean, to rejoice over that, but not to run around giving themselves high five. Look at, look at what happened. Look at what we did for God. When you lead someone to a right understanding of God, you are a part of a long process God has been using in that person's life. Sometimes that process is just shorter and faster. Sometimes it's a lifetime. You say, how do we really know that Jesus is teaching a, a spiritual principle from this, this healing? Because he does the same thing in Luke, excuse me, in John chapter nine. Turn over to John nine for a moment. This is an important pa- uh, parallel passage. This is after Jesus is going to leave the Galilee area. He's gonna go down the uh, Jordan River Valley into the Judea area. He's down right outside of Jerusalem. And in John 9, something else happens with healing a blind man. And notice that the healing of the blind man, Jesus himself uses to teach a greater principle of spiritual sight. Chapter 9, John 9, as he passed by, this, remember he's down around Jerusalem. He saw a blind man from birth, different guy, a few months later. His disciples ask him, they're getting theological rabbi. Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, there's a lot of theology there that we don't have time to unpack, except they they had this idea of cause and effect and consequence. Did his parents do something wrong? God judged him by making their son blind, or did he do something wrong and God ordained that he would be blind? Jesus answered, verse 3, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, neither one but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Verse five, this is important. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What sense does light affect your sight? He says, me as the light of the world is, is, is the leading principle you need to understand in what I'm about to do. So when he has said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle. This is a little different. Instead of spitting on the guy's eyes, I'm not sure if this is any better or not. He spits on the ground, makes some mud, applied it to the guy's eyes, said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated, also translated as scent. So he went away, washed, and he came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he looks like him, one like him. He kept saying, I am the one. This must have been maddening to this man. He's a blind beggar. He gets his sight back. He goes around, look, I can see. And they say, I don't think you're the same guy. 
just interesting. So they were saying to him, how are your eyes open? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made, out, uh, made clay, anointed my eyes and said to me, go wash in the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went away and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. <laughs> What's the point? Jesus healing this blind man appeals to himself as the light in a similar way that Mark is doing by saying the disciples need to see and hear. Jesus is, here it is, Jesus is fully capable to open blind eyes, to open deaf ears, to see and understand the spiritual realities of the gospel. That's the point. Back to Mark. Here's the command to silence again that we've studied so often. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. I think there's grace in that. Don't go be a spectacle. The people would figure this out pretty quickly, wouldn't they? He's not saying no one will ever know that you can see. I think they would know that by dinner. He's saying, don't go in the village, go home. Why? There's grace in that. Would you go enjoy this blessing that I just gave you before you become the talk of the town? So back up. Jesus heals a man who can't hear. Jesus heals a man who can't see. In the middle, Jesus says to his disciples, you have trouble seeing and you have trouble hearing. Do you see the connection? This highlights Jesus' ability and our inability. It shows us that faith is a progression of understanding. Oh, there's a moment of salvation, make no mistake. But there are sometimes pieces of the puzzle that have to be oriented well enough for us to see what the picture is. And that's exactly what Jesus is explaining. In this context, the disciples would not fully have their understanding until the resurrection. Look over at Mark 9, 9. We'll get there here in a few weeks. Coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until, until the Son of Man rose from the dead. In other words, this is not the full message yet. You don't see everything yet. You haven't heard everything yet, but you will. When will they fully see? When will they fully hear? Simple. When Jesus is executed on a Roman cross, is buried for three days and rises from the grave, then they would have full eyes that see and full ears that hear. He is teaching these people who are attracted to his miracles and his feeding. He also understood that who would not want Jesus to be the Messiah at that point? Would you elect someone who could provide you all the food you ever needed and give you not health care, but perfect health? I mean, I think I would probably vote for that guy. That's what they wanted to do at the feeding of the 5,000. They said, let's make him king. And he said, that's not why I came to be your feeder and your healer. I came to touch your soul and those who would come after you as well. This highlights Jesus' ability and our inability. James Edwards, we've quoted many times before, 
I've so enjoyed his commentary on Mark. He says this, this story brings us to the continental divide of Mark's narrative. It's quite a statement. By the gradual healing of the blind man, Jesus shows how the disciples in particular may come to faith. Like the blind man, disciples who have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear, they can also be made to see and to hear. But it will not happen on their own. The ability to see both physically and spiritually is a gift of God, not of human ability. We hear nothing of the man's faith or behavior in the present story. There's no hint that as his faith grew, his healing progressed. His healing from sight, from failed sight to partial sight to complete sight comes solely from the repeated touch of Jesus. And then he says this. This man's healing exemplifies the situation of the disciples who move through the same three stages in Mark from non-understanding being absolutely blind, to misunderstanding his partial sight, to complete understanding what you see in chapter 15, verse 39. That's really helpful. You can see a progression, by the way, in the next paragraph. Can't wait till this paragraph. Look, you're gonna need eyes and ears. And the next thing that happens is he takes them up north a few miles to Caesarea Philippi, takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and is transfigured. On the way up, he says, what's the rumor mill? Who do people say I am? Well, you're a prophet. You're John the Baptist reincarnate. You're Elijah. Who do you say I am? And Peter, it's hard not to go right into this passage right now. Peter says, well, you're the, you're the, the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And what's Jesus' response? Good job, Peter. Great conclusion. You came to that with good spiritual calculus. No. He says, you would have never figured this out. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but God who is in heaven. That's the point. God is the only one who can open eyes. Real quick, Ephesians chapter one. Look at Ephesians chapter one. This motif continues throughout the epistles. You know this well, Ephesians 1.18 Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your what? Heart. The eyes of your heart may be opened or enlightened. What does that mean? So that you will know. Stop right there. Spiritual sight comes from spiritual knowledge. Spiritual knowledge is only resident in your Bible, in the word of the living God. You'll know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of, his, of the glory of his inheritance with all the saints. You'll know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of his strength, of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I love this, verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is Jesus' body in the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. But there's a problem. There's a problem with gaining eyes to see and ears to hear. 
One last text in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is what we're up against. Let's just pick it up at verse one. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Literally, we do not disqualify ourselves. It has a moral element. 2 Corinthians 4, 2. But we've renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth in committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Verse three, even if our gospel is veiled, it's not easy to see. It is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds. There's our seeing motif of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Christ's sake. Verse six, for God who said, this is so encouraging, light shall shine out of darkness. That's the creation. Is the one who has shown in our hearts, our spiritual eyes, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Christ. So let's wrap it up. How can we have Blind eyes open, deaf ears that hear. How can we have eyes that see and ears to hear? We see the glory of God through the knowledge of God in the face of Christ, which is contained in his word. Is this the read your Bible more sermon? You bet it is. Absolutely. Do you have a spiritual theological vision for wisdom and sight? Let me ask you this. Do you have a theology of seeing and hearing? Do you have a theology for spiritual sight and spiritual deafness? Do you understand where you are in that progression? Here's the truth. We should have full sight and full understanding because we know the gospel, but there's also, we're growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, 2 Peter 3.18, every single day, aren't we? So I think this healing of the blind man is stages. Jesus was illustrating what he had just told the disciples about them not seeing and not hearing. You go from not understanding to partial or misunderstanding to better or full understanding, just like this blind man did. Do you have that understanding? You know, I shudder when we read this passage that says the minds of the unbelieving are, are blinded. If, you, if you're not a believer in Christ, if you're not a Christian, do you understand, this is, this is a tough word, that you are under satanic control in your understanding. He's blinded your minds, but the good news is by looking to Christ, your eyes will be open, your ears will hear, and you'll understand. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternity with Christ because God sent his son to be our payment for our sin and gave us his righteousness was crucified for it and, and didn't stay dead. He's alive. Love what John says in Revelation 1, speaking of Jesus. I'm the living one. I was dead and now I'm alive. So 
Where's your heart and eyes on the spectrum of understanding? Not understanding, misunderstanding, or understanding. Find yourself, don't, don't let the sun go down without you determining where you land in that progression. Knowing that we all need to move in greater vision and hearing of God and his word and his son. Would you bow me? Our prayer room is gonna be open to my right in just a few minutes. And if you would like to talk to someone about having eyes that see and ears that hear, if this is completely foreign to you and say, I don't get it, that's okay. There will be folks in there who'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to share with you the good news of the Savior. God has been kind to show us who he is in his word. He's been demonstrable in his grace and mercy. Let's not leave without seeing and experience that.